Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Thank you for joining us again, and we're on uh, episode number 22. We're continuing a, dis- a discussion that we began last time concerning uh, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's table, however you want to describe it or call it. We talked a little bit last time about what exactly that is, what it means. Today we're going to continue that discussion talking about the benefits of it, also more of the practical side of it. How is it to be administered in congregations, Christian congregations? And I I kind of mentioned in passing last time that perhaps no teaching of our particular church body or maybe confessional Lutheranism in general is as misunderstood or as offensive to to people on the outside as our practice of what we call closed communion. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Inevitably, you get visitors to your congregation, and when they hear that not everybody and not just anybody is welcome to the Lord's table, they immediately uh, get defensive. And I understand why. I mean, obviously in our culture, uh, we've been taught that we're entitled to everything, uh, to say to tell somebody you can't or not yet is like saying, "Hey, you don't think I'm a Christian, or you don't think I'm worthy. You, you, uh, you, you think I'm going to hell." I mean, I've heard just about everything. So this teaching is very important, but it's not coming from that place. In fact, out of due diligence for what the scriptures teach, and certainly out of love for our neighbor, love for our visitors. This is truly the most loving practice that we can conduct, and it's important. So we'll talk about that today. Uh, first of all, you know, what, what benefit do we receive from the Lord's Supper? And some of these verses I think we've probably read through already, but it's worth hearing them again. In Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance, or literally into the remembrance of me. And I didn't maybe mention that last time as far as what, what's the significance of that preposition into. We're, we're not just doing this to remember Jesus as in, you know, like you're, you're toasting a long lost friend or something. Oh, he was a good guy, that Jesus. Uh, you know, this is something that we're partaking of that actually places us into the remembrance of what Christ has done for us, literally into his death and resurrection. Uh, the forgiveness that he won for us. As we, as we talked about the definition of a sacrament, we said it's, it's a sacred act instituted by Christ, contains a visible element connected with his word and through which he seals or pledges to us, distributes to us, if you will, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation that he has won. And so that, that's what we're uh, receiving here. This is a, a very important uh, part of the Christian life. It always has been since the earliest years of the church, the early Christian church. Uh, So Jesus says, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then then again in Matthew 26, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus himself tells why he's distributing it and what it's for. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And then in 2 Timothy 1.10, we read that our Savior Christ Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And as we mentioned last time, just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is, in, 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 in many ways, pure gospel. 
Now, it, it can be otherwise if it's not understood or received properly, but for the sake of uh, sinners who understand what they're receiving, uh, who, who, who uh, have the, the proper examination and so on, we're going to talk about those things. It is pure gospel. We, we go to receive forgiveness, and of course, where there is forgiveness, Luther would say there's also life and salvation. So I mentioned that at the last episode as well, that uh, it's not just a forgiveness thing where Jesus punches our card and, and we, you know, we get a, a get-out-of-jail-free card or something like that. Sin is a death problem as well. So sin is always separating us from God. It's always leading us to the grave and, worst of all, eternal separation from God. In the sacrament, Christ comes uh, with his forgiveness, but also he bestows his life. We become partakers of his life. And that's incredible. That's the life that never ends. That's eternal life. So he's abolished death and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, even the Lord's Supper. So in the Lord's Supper, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And as I said, where there's forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. So, you know, the next question then is, is should be obvious, why then would we go to the Lord's Supper Obviously, when we think about the blessings they're given, when we recognize that we need those blessings, that would drive us to the sacrament as frequently as we can, right? Luke 22, Jesus said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And again, Matthew 26, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins, and again, life and salvation. So uh, we, we go to the Lord's table to receive that forgiveness of sins, to be strengthened in our faith. Now, inevitably somebody will say, but don't we receive those things by hearing God's word in the gospel? And the answer to that is yes. We talked about absolution at the beginning of our services where we hear that forgiveness pronounced upon us through the words of the pastor And uh, that is a real impartation, a real distribution, a real giving of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has won for all. But usually in our services, that's applied in a general sense. It's applied over the whole congregation. Uh, We talked about private confession where you could go to a pastor privately and receive that personal assurance and have that private absolution that's applied only to you. In many ways, the sacrament of the altar is, is just that too. It's a private absolution, not private, it's a, it's a personal absolution, I should say. It's applied to you in particular. Uh, this is my body given and shed for you as it's given to you. This is my blood shed for you uh, as we receive the Lord's body and blood at the, the Lord's table there. So to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be strengthened in our faith, uh, I mentioned last time that we, you know, we eat three meals a day in order to keep our bodies alive and have energy and and sustain life and all that. Same thing spiritually. We need spiritual food. We need uh, the medicine of immortality, the food for the way, as the early church would call the Lord's Supper. In John 15, Jesus said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And uh, if you go and you read John 6, Jesus also says similarly, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So this idea of our connection with Christ, apart from him, we can do nothing. 
Apart from him, we have no life. So, of course, we would go to receive our life. In him, we live and move and have our being. Uh, We died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We think about all of those passages from the Bible that speak about how our life is intimately entwined, connected, uh, flows from the life of Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So certainly in the early church where there was always this threat of persecution, uh, to go to the Lord's table is a confession. It's a confession that this is what you believe, uh, that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinners, and that you believe there you receive life and salvation from him. So it's always a confession of what we believe. And in many ways, uh, we'll talk about this in a later discussion concerning worship. Uh, this, is a, this is a point that's often lost on modern Christianity. Uh, when we go to worship, we are making a confession of what we believe in how we act, in the words we say, in the words we sing, and uh, in our actions and all of these things. So certainly in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10 Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So there's also this idea of we are confessing a unity that we have in faith with those we commune side by side with. We are saying we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one in what we believe. Now, uh, this is uh, where it gets kind of interesting because the Bible doesn't say agree to disagree or as long as you're close enough. That's good enough. It says, be perfectly united of one mind. Let there be no divisions amongst you. So the the standard that God wants for our unity is not that we are close enough or that we kind of agree on most things, but that we be perfectly united. And when you are communing at the Lord's table, you are saying that I am perfectly united with the, uh, the faith that is proclaimed from this altar, this pulpit, this congregation, and I am one in faith with those that I am communing side by side with as well. If you don't believe those things, why would you commune there? So we'll talk more about that in just a second. In Acts chapter 2, we we kind of read, uh, we have this pattern for New Testament worship and what it looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread And the prayers. The breaking of bread there is sort of an idiomatic expression for uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But this is very much the pattern after which our modern services, in the Lutheran Church at least, are still patterned after. You know, we we hear the apostles teaching, we we hear God's word as it's read in our pericopes for each week, as it's explained in the sermon. Uh, There's certainly that element of fellowship, especially as we gather around the Lord's table. And there are prayers, that set prayers we even use. And that's, you know, the idea there in Acts 2 even, that they had set prayers, not just random prayers, but prayers that were built on Scripture, reflected the scriptural truths, and so on. So we approach the Lord's table, you know, number one, to receive the forgiveness of sins and to be strengthened in our faith. to, to be strengthened for lives of service to God and to our fellow man. I mean, as we said, food strengthens the body. This spiritual food strengthens the soul and our faith. 
We also go as a profession of our faith, a confession of our faith in the crucified Christ who is truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine with his body and blood. We also approach the Lord's table to show that we are of one faith with those who commune with us or where we commune. Now, obviously that last point there about uh, the unity that we have in faith with those we commune with comes into play when we discuss the practice of closed communion, which we're going to get to. So don't forget that point. Now, you know, before we get there, does everyone, we could ask, does everyone who goes to the sacrament receive Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins? In other words, do they all receive this benefit? And here's where the, the, the Bible is actually, you know, pretty clear that the answer is no. Unfortunately, not. And so what would be the reasons for that? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul writes, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, I would say, in some ways, it's kind of like modern medicine. If you were to go to the doctor, he doesn't just, uh, you know, throw a bottle of pills at you and say, okay, see you later. That would be dangerous, right? I mean, that would be irresponsible because we, we know that there's all sorts of warnings on all the medications that we get. If you don't understand what you're taking, how many to take, at what time to take it, whether food or not food, you take too many, take, you know, you take not enough, it's not going to help you. If you take too much, you could actually kill you. So it would certainly not be responsible or even loving for a doctor to just throw pills at you and say, here you go. Understanding that there's a way that you could receive it to your harm, even that which is intended for your good, it's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. Here, Paul would say that a person who doesn't discern or recognize the Lord's body and blood in the sacrament of the altar could receive it to their judgment. They could drink judgment on themselves. Now, uh, I would ask you, if you saw your loved one doing something that was going to lead them off a cliff or lead to their harm, is it loving to say, stop, don't do that? Or is it loving to say, hey, you know what? We support you. Those are your choices. And isn't it wonderful that you can do that? Of course you'd say, no, that's not loving. The loving thing sometimes is to say, no, this could hurt you. And it's the same thing in the church. So uh, what, what visitors often hear as, you're telling me I'm not a Christian. You're telling me that I, I'm not worthy or that I'm not going to heaven or that I don't believe in Jesus or whatever it might be. No, not necessarily. That's not true at all. In fact, it's because we care about our visitors that we would want to practice closed communion. Now, in the early church, it was exactly that. It was closed. The doors were closed. There was uh, the first part of the service, which we, we would say all the way up through like the sermon, maybe a little bit after, was called the service of the catechumen. Those who were going instruction for membership in the church, uh, they were allowed to stay for that whole thing. But as soon as the communion liturgy was to begin, they would call out the doors, the doors, and then those catechumens would be, would be ushered out, the doors would be closed, and then there was what they called the service of the faithful, the communion liturgy. And it was, it was for this reason in, in some ways as well, that this is something that is sacred, uh, that is special. You, you need to understand what, what it's about and what you're receiving, but you could also do this to your harm. 
So we retain what's called the practice of closed communion, and I know that's probably confusing to some of our listeners who have grown up in the Lutheran Church because sometimes you've heard it referred to as close communion. And I, I'm not exactly sure where that uh, title ever came to be. I think it's maybe less offensive to some people. It, sound, it doesn't sound as rigid. It's close communion, you know. It, uh, but unfortunately, in our day and age, I've seen it, <laughs> it used in a different sense. It's close enough communion. It, yeah, we don't believe the same thing, but it's close enough. So, you know, go ahead and, you know, we can all commune together and let's just agree to disagree. So the, the original practice was certainly closed communion, and there's no uh, shame or harm in retaining that, that name because it, it, it is properly closed communion. It's not just for anyone and everybody, and we're going to see some of the reasons why in, in just a minute. So Hebrews 11.6 also says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we, we certainly do teach that faith needs to be present in the reception of the Lord's Supper. Everything that we receive from God for our salvation is received by faith. It doesn't work magically, just like I said with baptism. Baptism is not magical water. It's water combined with the Word of God, and it's received in faith. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. If you do not have faith, you won't receive the benefits that are there distributed. In fact, it could be just the opposite. You could receive harm to yourself. St. Paul would say that there were some who had received it to their harm, and some had fallen asleep, even you know, died, essentially, from uh, unworthy or careless participation in the Lord's Supper. So all who go to the Lord's Supper where it's properly celebrated receive Jesus' body and blood uh, by faith. However, a person who does not recognize this and who does not believe in Jesus as his Savior does not receive the forgiveness of sins, but commits a sin against Jesus and receives him as judge rather than Savior. Now, that's a, that's a harsh reality. It's, it's not something that people like to talk about. I think, uh, you know, for a long time, the standard practice in just about any denomination was that, you know, your altars were for those of your fellowship. So you didn't have people coming in and out and any visitor was welcome to partake. That's something that's very much a, a more recent, and by more recent, I mean within the last hundred or so years, practice. So the church always historically practiced close communion. In fact, in the early church, if you were traveling to a different city and you knew you were going to be gone for a while because it was not as easy to travel, you could be gone for months at a time, if you wanted to receive the Lord's Supper at another congregation as you were traveling, you had to have a letter from your pastor. There had to be communication between those pastors. Uh, so there was a recognition, yes, we are one in faith. We teach the same thing. We believe the same thing. This person is fine to commune there or, or vice versa or whatever. In, in our world, that, that whole idea is completely lost. It, it goes against the way we tend to think in this world. But uh, when we recognize the seriousness and the sacredness of what takes place there, why would we approach it any other way? This is, this is you know, for everyone's good. Now, what should we therefore do? Uh, we heard about some of the dangers of receiving the sacrament in an unworthy manner. What should we therefore do before partaking of communion? What can we do in preparation for communion? Uh, I maybe mentioned this in our discussion about absolution, the office of the keys. Historically, uh, before you communed, you would always go and you would announce to your pastor, 
sometimes you would go to the parsonage or to his house or wherever it was, and you would uh, meet with them the night or the week before. And you would say, I plan to commune next Sunday. And it gave you an opportunity to talk with your pastor, maybe receive private absolution, confession absolution. Um, but there was this real relationship, therefore, between the, the shepherd and his flock. And it also impressed upon you that something special was going to happen. So a lot of Christians would fast. They would fast maybe from Saturday evening, and they wouldn't eat anything Sunday morning until after they had received the Lord's Supper. Uh, as a pious discipline, certainly uh, not as a means of gaining merit or something before God, but spiritual discipline is something that's always, you know, beneficial as long as we understand the motivation and, and why we do it. But these are kind of practices that in many ways have fallen by the wayside. We don't hear about them, and uh, I'm not aware of too many people that even practice that way anymore. Now, there are congregations that do, and that's good. Uh, but once these things are lost, they're kind of, they're gone. I mean, it's really difficult to bring them back in a non-legalistic manner. I mean, you can impose it upon your people and say, you must do this. But coercing people is not the same thing as showing them the value in doing these things. So, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and 29, St. Paul writes, Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's a, a self-examination. And we'll talk, you know, what does that consist of? What does that even mean? You know, the Bible is full of these admonitions to test yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith, examine yourself. And I think a lot of people have no idea, but what does that even mean? You know, we, we know we go to the doctors to get examined, but how do we examine ourselves spiritually? Well, Acts 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. One of the first things we can do is, are we, ask ourselves, are we truly repentant for our sins? Do we have the sincere de- desire to improve our sinful lives, to leave sin and to live lives that are glorifying and honoring to God? And if the answer is no, I'm not repentant. I don't, I'm not repentant for my sins. I don't have the desire to improve my, well, uh, the sacrament is not for you. Okay. That, that, that should be your first clue. I mean, it should tip you off. Why would you go? If you, if you have no desire for forgiveness or, you know, to receive the gifts that your Savior gives you there, why would you go? And especially if you don't want to you know, improve your life or you don't have the desire to, with the help of God, you know, henceforth, uh, live a godly life doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but certainly that, that should always be our desire. Mark chapter 1, repent and believe in the gospel. So again, the idea, is there true repentance? And then the second part, do I believe the gospel? Of course, the gospel is the good news about Jesus and his perfect life lived in our place under the law, his death, his innocent suffering and death in our place, uh, suffering the death that we deserve for our sins? Do I believe that that is what saves me? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has saved me and redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature? So if the answer is no, well, why would you come to the Lord's Supper? Why would you want to partake of those gifts that Jesus says he's giving there? So th- those two are pretty obvious. Uh, I would say, you know, you know, bare minimum. I mean, it should be obvious if you don't believe those things, if you don't understand that, then 
you shouldn't be receiving this. 1 John 1, uh, John writes, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So do I believe that Jesus' blood shed for me on the cross cleanses me from all sin? And, and in this regard, do I believe that that same blood is what is given to me now in the sacrament? That cleansing blood of Jesus is given to me now for my food. Ephesians 1.7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So again, same idea. Jesus' body and blood are given for the cleansing of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and so that we would receive life from him. Do we believe those things? The vicarious atonement, the substitutionary atonement that Jesus died for me. Not just that he died for sinners, but that he died for me personally. Ephesians 4, 22 and verse 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, here's this idea of, do we intend with the help of God uh, by his Holy Spirit to, uh, to put away the former, to live in that newness of life that he's bestowed upon us. Again, this is not saying we're going to do it perfectly. It, it's certainly not a license to go out there and sin, but we understand that even uh, our best efforts are always going to be tainted by sin. So do we have the desire to live lives that glorify and honor God? Uh, and hopefully the answer is yes. If the answer is no, then you shouldn't receive the sacrament. Now, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So again, the idea is, if we really love God, if we love Jesus, and we are connected with him, then out of thanksgiving for what he's done for us, we want to live lives that honor him. And of course, we know what honors him and what his will is because he's revealed it to us in the commandments and in other places in the scriptures as well. So, if the answer to that is, I don't have any intention to keep the commandments, I have no intention to love Christ, well then, of course, you shouldn't receive the sacrament. And I think all of these are pretty straightforward and obvious and, and hopefully, you know, just common sense to, to most of you out there. But in our church, we also have aids uh, that, that help us prepare for proper reception of the Lord's Supper. Usually our hymnals have a page or two where they They've got an examination questions that you can run through that you can ask yourselves uh, that kind of go through some of these same issues and uh, to help you prepare. If you have a catechism, you know, Luther's small catechism has such a thing too. There's, there's numerous resources out there. It's not to say that you have to use those in particular, but they've already been set up for you, you know, for this very purpose. So it's a good, it's a good starting place at least. Once you've got it internalized and, and you understand these things, you can always expand upon it and, and, you know, you can do it without having to look at these things. But uh, why reinvent the wheel, right? Now, as you may have gleaned from just that portion that we just discussed, there are times where some people should not be admitted to the Lord's Supper. And again, in our culture, This goes against everything we've been taught. You can't tell me I can't do anything. I'm entitled to anything I want to do. I can do whatever I want. Who are you to tell me I can't? 
So the church has a responsibility to make sure that the sacrament is administered according to Christ's institution and that uh, those who receive it there receive it to their benefit rather than their harm. Let's kind of go through this again. Who should not be admitted to the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11, uh, He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So, if you don't discern the real presence of Christ's body in blood in the Lord's Supper, you should not be receiving it in our church. Now, where this plays out probably in practical terms most often is, you know, there are numerous denominations out there that do not believe in the real presence. So for them, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is merely a remembrance meal. It's a symbolic type thing. At most, it's sort of a spiritual partaking of Jesus' body and blood, but it's not a real partaking. And inevitably, when those types of people come into our congregations, and sometimes our practice maybe looks similar to their practice, they think, well, I I do this all the time at my congregation, therefore I should receive it here. But uh, it would be very careless for a Lutheran church to admit just anybody. Again, without them understanding what they're receiving, they could be receiving it to their harm. What kind of loving church would put a person in that position? It, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, it boggles my mind. And yet so many Lutheran churches today practice what we would call open communion. And they think this is wonderful and it's the loving proper thing. It's, it's probably the less offensive thing and it's probably the easier path to take. I suppose it's, it's, you, you don't ever have to get in these uncomfortable conversations with people. But I think, uh, in my experience, if you take the time and explain why you practice the way you do, people will come understand that you you do this because you care, not just because you're trying to be, you know, uh, an elite club of people. You know, this is our country club. You you're not a member here. You can't you can't you can't play here or whatever. First Corinthians five, Paul says, "But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you." So those who are living in openly unrepentant, manifest sin they're not sorry for their sins, should not be admitted. This is for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're going to trample the grace of God underfoot, it's not going to be at our table, right? I mean, it shouldn't be there. You know, this person could also be doing themselves great harm. Uh, They may not realize it, but if they don't treat sin seriously, why would they want to receive the forgiveness of sins from the Savior? So uh, the church is not uh, amongst those that would give the testimony that sin doesn't matter. We would say, yeah, it does. It's always deadly. And so the church is a hospital. It's a place for sinners, those who desire the medicines. It's not the healthy of the, the world that need a doctor. It's the sick. And if you don't realize you're sick, then this medicine is not for you. You need to first come to grips with your sickness And in that regard, uh, you need the diagnostic tool, the x-ray of the law.
the law which reveals and brings to the forefront the knowledge of sins. So examine your life in light of the Ten Commandments, and you'll see that you are sick with this sin, and you need the Savior. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's an interesting one. Um, we, we, we talk about the forgiveness of sins an awful lot. We pray for it even in the Lord's Prayer. We, we expect God to forgive us. But don't we kind of cut ourselves off at the knees when we say, God, I need your forgiveness. I, without it, I am totally lost. But boy, that guy really irked me the other day, and I just I can't bring it myself to forgive him. Isn't it kind of hypocritical when we're asking God for forgiveness and yet we're not willing to forgive others who have sinned against us? So as we examine our own hearts, are we bearing grudges? Are we withholding forgiveness from others? If so, we should not come to the Lord's table. If you, if you know somebody is refusing to be reconciled or something, they're unforgiving, they should not come to the Lord's table. And likewise, in Matthew 5, it says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So certainly as Christians, uh, we we always want to reconcile with those who we've maybe been in a dispute with or we've offended or whatever as much as is possible uh, to forgive and be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. And then, of course, we come before God asking for his forgiveness as well. Romans chapter 16. Uh, this is probably a, a very unpopular passage with a lot of people, but uh, really it, it becomes important for our understanding. Romans 16, 17 and 18, really I would, I would urge you to read all of those verses, 17 and 18. We're going to look at 17, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers, or brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. Now, avoid them is not in in the sense of um, look down your nose and think you're better than them, and that you're the real deal, genuine Christian, and they're just trash or something like that. That's That's not what he's saying. So I would always warn that we need to be careful that we don't read this verse in a self-righteous way. And I think there's times, you know, just to be a little bit critical, I think there's times where sometimes even in our circles that we tend to use this verse this way. We got to mark those who teach contrary and those are the heathen, we are the true believers. No, because sometimes people are caught up in in uh, falsehood out of weakness. They're weak brothers. So we don't automatically treat somebody as if they're an unbeliever. However, uh, when it comes to doctrine, we are, are uncompromising. We don't bend. We don't give. Why? Because it doesn't belong to us. We don't get to bend God's rules to fit our own standards, our own uh, comforts, our own desires. So understanding that doctrine teachings is God's love language. It's his word to us. It's by which we live. It's the gospel that gives life. It's the power of God unto salvation. We don't get to tamper with these things. And it's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's the Lord's table. So he's the one who sets the table. 
He's the one who sets the standard by which those are to be admitted to the table. So it's not saying that these people who don't believe as we are are going to hell or that they're not Christian or any of those types of thoughts, but it is saying that doctrine matters and that the standard of unity that the New Testament puts forth for us is not agree to disagree, not close enough, not, uh, well, we're agreed on the most important points and therefore that's good enough, even though we may disagree on a lot of things. If it's God's word, every teaching matters and every teaching is connected in, in, in a way that sometimes we don't always see. We can't, it's like Jenga, you know, you think you can pull out that one block and the rest of it's still going to stand. And for the most part, it does for a while, but you don't know at what point that one thing is going to take the whole thing down because every time you take one out, the whole structure is weakened. At some point it will. Yeah. Or like a, a spoke on a wheel, I suppose. At the very center, you've got the hub, and that's the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And every other teaching is a spoke that goes out from there. Now, in in a tire, you can probably pull out a spoke and you say, hey, it still works. How long? Uh, how long till it doesn't? Two, three, yeah, and how, six. And yeah, how many spokes can you pull off before the whole thing gives way or pretty soon that uh, it's no longer circular? That thing is no longer at the center. Something else is to take its place. So th- this is not being hard-headed or rigid for rigidness sake. And it's easy to be that way. It's easy to become legalistic and say, well, this is what it says. Uh, obviously, our desire is unity with all people, but we want to establish God-pleasing unity. And this is why in the early church, the period of catechesis for someone to become a member sometimes could take as long as three years. There was not a rush to get people in. They wanted them to understand the mysteries of, of the Christian faith, to really understand what, what the church taught and believed, so that when they made their confession before the church and before God, they could say, yes, this is my confession. And it's the same thing in our churches. We go through a long instruction program because we want our, our visitors or people, potential members, to understand what we believe, teach, and confess first. So that when they make their confession, they're saying, yes, I believe the same thing you do. We've discovered that we have God-pleasing unity. Not that we just simply agree to disagree or, hey, I like, I like uh, the music in your church, therefore I'm going to join. Now, the temptation for congregations today is to just get people on the membership books as fast as possible. Hey, it means more money, it looks better, all of these things. But in the process, very often the unity of faith that God desires gets trampled. And you have people that join for all the wrong reasons and who don't really believe what you believe, teach, and confess. So it's, it's not trying, again, it's not trying to be rigid or, uh, you know, to, to form some sort of elite country club or something like that. It's understanding that we take God's word seriously. We don't have a right to just disregard parts or, you know, skip over parts that are not convenient for us. And uh, if we're going to have unity, we, we strive for that God-given unity, that God-pleasing unity uh, that's according to his standard, not that we simply agree to disagree. And, I, and I've heard a lot of people try to pit love against faith or something. Well, you guys get caught up in all that doctrinal stuff. I just worry about trying to love other people and treat them nice. As if somehow love and truth don't belong together. 
Well, uh, it's a different type of love then, I guess, because the love that the Bible speaks of talks about not only love for our fellow man, but also love for God. And that means also love for his word. So if we truly love our neighbor, we want them to know the truth of God's word. And if we truly love God, we want to hold to his word. It's just, it's those two things belong together. So as, as much as it sounds nice, we believe in deeds, not creeds. There's there's never been such a church. It's, it just is, it's... It's a shorthand way of saying we just don't think God's word matters or we don't think that it should matter that much, whatever it might be. Or we think that, uh, you know, our, our love is more important, whatever that version of love might be or whatever that standard of love might be. It's not according to truth, evidently. So 1 Corinthians 10, Paul would say, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So again, those who have a different faith or a different confession, the Lord's Supper is a, is a testimony. It is an expression of the unity of our faith, a confession of the unity of our faith. We are one body. If you don't agree with that, why would you want to make that confession? So to, to me, this is always the wonder. I wonder uh, if you're a visitor that, that comes into a church that you don't believe what that church teaches, why would you want to commune there? understanding what the scriptures say. Why would you want to do that? It doesn't even make sense to me. But I, again, I think a lot of people have not really thought through these issues, and I don't think that they necessarily do it with animosity or, or you know, ill will in their heart. But I, I, I don't understand if you've really read, you know, the Bible in these passages, um, why you would think that would be a good idea. If you don't really, if you're not one in the faith with these people, why would you want to do that? And again, I think there's this idea, this individualism that permeates our culture that says, it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. As long as I know in my heart what it is, then God, it's between me and God. Uh, but that's not that's not the way the Bible describes it. Right. It's not my truth, it's his truth. Right. It, it t- turns the whole Christian faith into a very subjective thing. Right. Obviously, it, again, it's not our it's not our supper, it's the Lord's supper, it's not our teachings, it's the Lord's teachings, and so on and so forth. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So uh, we would say those who are not able to examine themselves should not commune. And, you know, what does that mean? I guess, uh, you know, there's a reason why we put children through confirmation classes, which is, in essence, a catechesis, an instruction period. And it's for the purpose of uh, preparing them to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That's really the whole purpose of of confirmation. I I don't know what what people, uh, you know, tend to think about it, but I don't know that a lot of people think of it in those terms. They think it's kind of a rite of passage. It's a graduation ceremony or something like that. Now now you've, you've, uh, you, you've done your part, now you can kind of go off and forget about church the rest of your life. That's kind of the way uh, I think it's, it's... something we do in seventh grade and then, you know, we're, we're done. It's done. This is really a preparation for the rest of your life. And it's the same thing we do with visitors or, you know, people who express interest in joining. We, we, we take them through catechesis, instruction, uh, so that when they come to the Lord's table, number one, they know what they're confessing and they can agree to it and also what they're receiving, and they don't receive it to their harm or detriment, but they receive it to their benefit. So uh, again, we, we want to be thorough in doing this, but if a person is not able to examine themselves, if they haven't been instructed, then we wouldn't want to put them in harm's way. For this reason, we don't commune 
little children who don't understand maybe. No, I get, I get that in a certain, you get to a certain point and some of this becomes somewhat subjective or arbitrary. At what age is a child able to discern the teachings of the Christian faith to such a point that where they could receive the Lord's Supper to their benefit? How much do we need to teach them in order for them to do that? And I would say, um, you know, they should be able to understand the entire creed and articulate those things for themselves. So uh, we've, we've tended to lean on secular sciences to tell us at what age do children have the ability to reason and think for themselves. And generally speaking, uh, some people would say, you know, around seventh or eighth grade, what, what age is that? Like 12, 13, something like that. I, yeah, that's pretty close. Um, now, obviously it varies from child to child. Some children are very mature. Uh, they could probably do that much younger. Other children, uh, even at 12 or 13, <laughs> they've got many years to go before they can... Even after high school. Yeah, they, they may never reach that that level of maturity. But uh, the, the point is, is I, I don't know that there's a, a good answer to that. I, ideally, you know, we don't want to be making different rules for everybody. So that would, in a certain sense, open us up to... Uh, the idea of favoritism or, you know, playing favorites or whatever it might be. On the other hand, uh, I think we do need to recognize that, you know, there is a little bit of a, of an area here where, uh, you know, that we've kind of historically decided that this is an age where this is a fitting time to instruct them. They can understand some of these deeper concepts, which maybe they couldn't understand when they were younger. And they also have this ability to examine themselves. So confirmation in our churches usually begins, you know, sixth, seventh or eighth grade, depending. So that's confirmation. We, we talk about that. Uh, when a person's confirmed, they make a confession before the congregation who then prays for them that they would grow in grace and uh, be steadfast in their profession of faith. They are welcomed into communicant membership in the congregation. Now, uh, there are also those others who maybe are not able to examine themselves. And again, these become difficult situations. Now, the obvious one would be if somebody is in a coma, do you commune somebody who's in, in a coma? Well, they're not even uh, conscious. So uh, obviously their ability to examine themselves. And now this is not to say that they don't have faith. Obviously you have faith when you're sleeping and so on. But it's just not a practice that the church has done. And so recognizing that there could be potential problems with that, we, we just generally don't do that. The other situation that becomes uh, a little bit tough is when somebody has things like dementia or Alzheimer's, where they kind of come and go. You might go and you might visit with somebody and uh, they've got moments where they're very lucid and, and they're with you. You can have a conversation with them and they know who you are, what's going on, and then they can go suddenly into a place where uh, they're seeing people and having things happen that 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 are not really going on. So one of the things a pastor will usually have to try to do, and it, it, there's pastoral discretion that needs to be, you know, applied in these situations is, you know, ask them a few questions. You know, do you know why I'm here? Do you know, do you know what you're going to be receiving here? And if they say, well, I could really go for a snack or something right now. And they think this is what you're, you're just there. Obviously it may not be the right time. 
it's not that you can't commune that person, but I would say there's probably a better time when maybe they're with it. And again, this is not by any means to undermine the miraculous nature of faith or God's gifts to us and so on and so forth. Uh, by all means, I think we should take every opportunity to instruct as much as possible and commune those people. Now, there's also those people with special needs, maybe the developmentally disabled or something like that. And uh, they may never get to that level of understanding where uh, they can articulate all of the teachings of the creed or something like that. And so I think we need to be honest and understand that there are times where we do the best that we possibly can. And we also know that those gifts are, are intended for those people as well. Um, but we, we want to make sure that we do it in a responsible way where they're not receiving it to their harm either. So just to sort of summarize, we admit to communion only those who have received sufficient instruction in the chief parts of Christian doctrine, uh, who've made a public confession of their faith. And this is done usually on the day of confirmation, or um, if you're an adult convert, then it would be kind of an adult confirmation or a profession of faith. And at that time, the catechumens are received into communicant membership by the congregation, which I said as then they pray for them, that they would grow in grace and in their profession of faith, that they would become fruitful in every good work and in the, in the end receive the crown of life. Now, we always say that all who wish to commune should make their intention known to the pastor so that he may have occasion to speak with them in the interest of their spiritual welfare. This is called announcement or registration for Holy Communion. In today's church, uh, this has been reduced to what? Putting your name on the uh, sheet of paper yeah. that's in front of the church. Sign, yeah. sign the sheet, or here's a card. Yeah. Fill it out and drop it in the in the, the offering, offering plate. plate or hand it yep. to the usher, whatever it might be. On your way in, or even when you're in there, you can just do it, and then we're good. And unfortunately, that, that's what it's come to. And again, uh, I don't think we can be legalistic in trying to reverse these things, but I, I do think we should encourage people to really say, is this the best way to do this? Is there a better way that we could do this? A, a way that's going to benefit us? Y you know, I, I think those are, those are discussions that are worthy of having. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, th they are discussions that are going on. I think if you look at any of the forums online, you know, go to some of these Lutheran forums on Facebook or wherever, and pe people are having these discussions, you know, whether it be communion frequency or closed communion or... Uh, different practices, announcement, uh, all of these things uh, are important for pastoral care too. As pastors, uh, you you want to know your people. You want to be able to have those one-on-one -on -one times where you, you get to know their needs and what you can pray for them for. And it's, it's not a matter of, uh, I think some people see it as the pastor trying to be the policeman. He's trying to dig in my dirt, you know, you know see what, what's going on in, in, in my life or whatever. No, that's not, not at all the case. But as one who cares for your soul, he, he wants to know how he can care for you and how he can serve you. So some of these practices that have been lost, uh, I don't know if there's an easy way back, but I think they're discussions that we have to have and ask ourselves, is this really the best way that we can do things? Is this really serving the purpose that we think it is? And uh, in some ways, even nowadays with the shorthand, if you, if you are, so for instance, we are in the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, and we've got brothers and sisters whom we're in fellowship with in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Now, that means that their members are welcome usually to commune with us, and our members are usually welcome to commune with them. 
So, you know, sometimes you go into another congregation of your fellowship and you say, well, don't worry, I'm good. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a card carrying <laughs> member. I've been a lifelong member. Uh, and that's, that's the extent of the conversation. Is that really the kind of pastoral care that pastors want to exhibit? Is that really uh, the kind of examination that we as individuals want to, to you know, express as yeah, we well? We just kind of gloss over it. Yeah. What do these things even mean? So it's a shorthand way, and it, I'm not saying that it's bad. It just in so many ways, a lot of these issues that we've discussed here today just kind of get trampled. And uh, I think we should we should ask ourselves: Is this good, bad? And if so, you know what 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 could be done that would be better? And again, not in a legalistic way, not in a sense that if you're really you must do it this way or something. I don't think strong-arming people is the way, but I think having these discussions is is good for us. Now, finally, should a feeling of unworthiness, we've talked about this idea of worthy and unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. And I know a lot of people who stay away from the Lord's Supper, maybe they, they only receive it uh, once a year or whatever. They might say, well, I want it to be special. That that whole notion that if we do it too often, it'll become too commonplace, is a notion that comes out of a, of a movement called Pietism, which is uh, usually piety is good, but Pietism, the movement was bad. Again, thinking about the benefits that we receive from the Lord's Supper, uh, we we want to receive it frequently as sinners. We we need that forgiveness that Christ gives us there. However, uh, occasionally you'll come across somebody who will say, "I just don't feel worthy." I don't think I should come to communion. Now, that's fair enough. If you've examined yourself and you, you've got something that you're not repentant for or whatever, there might be reasons why a person stays away. However, a lot of times people are carrying guilt or, or um, shame or whatever for past sins. Uh, they, they think that in order to become worthy, they've somehow got to make amends before God. You know, they put something between them and the forgiveness that God wants to give in Christ. And remember, uh, what makes us worthy to stand in God's presence in the first place? It's not nothing we do. It's by grace we've been saved. It's only the merits of Christ that make us worthy to be in God's presence. So this idea of, well, I feel unworthy. On one hand, I get it because that's what the law does to us, right? It says, you deserve death. The wages of sin is death. You are not worthy. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, it's, it's precisely uh, that sinners that Jesus came to save. So when we recognize our unworthiness, in some ways, this is the mark of proper examination, isn't it? Is it not? I mean, uh, recognizing that, hey, I don't deserve any of these gifts. I think the, the opposite would be to say, Lord, you owe me one, so I'm coming to communion this Sunday, you know. Uh, you better be there. Uh, I, I need to do my part so I can get what you're going to give me. Yeah. So this this idea of unworthiness, uh, keeping somebody, it, it should not be the case. In fact, you know, we think about uh, that beautiful prayer we find in the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? And that's something that we could all pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful on me, the sinner. The only thing we can come before God pleading is his mercy, because especially when we recognize our unworthiness, our sinfulness, our need for forgiveness. 
And when we recognize those things, it's precisely for those reasons that Christ has given us the sacrament of the altar, right? For our personal assurance, for that forgiveness, for that life, for that strengthening. And um, as in Isaiah, we read, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. It's not based on the strength of our faith or how mighty our faith is that makes us worthy, right? Uh, It's precisely because we understand apart from him, we can do nothing, that we are uh, grafted into, into the vine, right? I mean, he's the vine, we're the branches. We, we need to be grafted into him. Here's one of the ways that God does that. So Jesus would say, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So the very fact that we feel unworthy and we long for God's forgiveness uh, should be a, a reason that would compel us to come to the Lord's Supper. And there's, there's probably nuanced arguments in, in this regard, too. Like, I don't want to make it sound like, um, you know, some people have guilt for good reason. You know, they're trying to cover something that they're continuing to do. Well, that's different, obviously. But we're, we're talking about somebody who just feels like, uh, I don't think God could forgive me or I don't think I'm worthy. Well, in that sense, nobody is worthy, right? Nobody's worthy of God's grace and mercy. Join the club. Exactly. So as I said, uh, you know, a lot of people think of the church as a, as a spiritual gymnasium where you come to flex your muscles of faith and, you know, sort of show off in front of the mirror and say, look at, look at how strong I am. Uh, we, we understand that the church is a, is a hospital. It's a refuge for sin-sick sinners where God brings the medicine of immortality in his son, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, life and death for sinners. So there's, there's probably many other things we could say in regard to the Lord's Supper and the practice of the Lord's Supper. And we will talk more about this when we talk about um, worship. We'll do a whole episode on worship in the future here. But um, for now, we're going we're gonna to leave it at that. And we're going to continue with our study next time and move on to some other topics. So uh, on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. Adam Lauren Thompson. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.